0: Hello and welcome to the new decade's first episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. However, for this episode, I'm changing the format ever so slightly. And rather than talking about a single material, I should be talking in the plural. So materials and why they matter. And that's because I'm talking to two of the UK's leading product designers. Edward Barber and Jay Osgoby have been working together since they first met at the Royal College in 1992. They officially set up practice four years later and have gone on to create a slew of iconic products. Initially working in plywood, the duo have created everything from plastic home accessories for Authentics to a porcelain lamp for Hermes. They've also created installations for the likes of Sony, BMW and the London Design Biennale and were of course responsible for the design of the Olympic torch in the 2012 Games. In 2007 they were awarded Royal Designers for Industry by the Royal Society of Arts and in 2013 they received an OBE each for their services to design. Ed, Jay, thank you very much for doing this. Great introduction, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> that sounds quite good. Yeah, you see, you've done all right. I don't remember any of it. Well, <laughs> well, I hope you can, because we've got an hour of talking <laughs> okay. about yourselves. Right? <laughs> Let's hope um, so, everybody. Can we talk a little bit about your name first? When we first met in around 1998, I think you were doing the Soho Brewing Company at the time, um, you were BOA, Barber Osgoby Associates, then you were Barbara Osgoby, and currently you're now Barbara and Osgoby um is the ampersand important does it have any significance i actually,
1: I actually think it might have gone there i think it's gone it's again very yeah. confusing yeah. and it, it reflects in a way our, our our um trajectory i suppose as designers as we've you know I, I you know we came out of the royal college having done architecture masters um and that required a team of people quite quickly i think um I think the idea of the associates was that we imagined at that point that we would become an architecture practice uh, with our names over the door but recognising the other that, people
2: that uh, sort of paranoia that when you're starting out that you don't want to look too small to a future client so if you have associates it might, <laughs> it might <laughs> allude to the fact that you're Did we have any? slightly more serious No, not at all <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> but yeah so it's you're right we've have got an issue with branding <laughs> but as you said, I think the ampersand has gone again. I mean, it's never really
2: been that important to us. I mean, obviously, the barber and the B speak for themselves, and I think whatever happens in between or at the end, <laughs> it's not so important. Fair enough. I mean, can we talk a bit about your
0: background? Because it seems to me, if you look at all the press clippings, your lives appeared to start in 1992 when you met at the Royal College doing the, on the architecture course, right? Yeah. Um, but obviously, you were interested in design and architecture, before that and i wonder if we could discover a little bit about when you became interested in in design i mean jay should we start with you
1: well okay so yeah no there was life before 92 uh, a little bit i guess 22 years of it really born in 1969 um and then i grew up in oxfordshire i really enjoyed making things and drawing i didn't really know that design was an option or a career, I thought that you'd probably be, you know, if you were interested in those things, it would be art, sculpture, or architecture, really. Those would be the things to do. And I sorted out various work experiences myself as a a teenager, which enabled me to get put off most things.
0: (laughs) I mean, we're we're family artistic.
1: Uh, My dad was a chef, and my mum actually has become a kind of art historian. She retrained essentially, but she, she was always, she failed her 11 plus and I think always felt that she was denied an education. And so as us, us boys growing up was never really an option not to contemplate sixth form and university. It was like, it was just had to happen. Um, And I'm glad it did. Uh, And my mum was always a really very much pushing me into the kind of creative world in some capacity. So I knew that that would be, I hope that that's where I'd end up. And actually, it turned out that that's actually what I really enjoyed doing. You ended
0: up at Ravensbourne.
1: Yes, I did a foundation at Oxford Right, I went to Ravensbourne and studied furniture and I think they called it furniture and related product design. And then from there, I was going to go to the RCA and do furniture, but I was advised against it by my tutors at Ravensbourne at the time because they didn't think the course was very good. And they suggested I go to Milan and I couldn't afford it. So I decided to do something different and apply to the architecture and interiors course at the Royal College, which fortuitously is where I met this blank. Yeah. I mean, Ed,
0: what about you? Cause you went to Leeds poly, I seem to remember. Yeah.
2: <clears throat> I did. Um, well, I think the most important part of my education really was to do a foundation course. Um, and that's where I really, cause before that I, I did do a design, a level, um, but I didn't. It didn't really do a lot for me, actually. I think it was when I went to my foundation course. I really understood what design could be, but I was still undecided. Even then, I was going to try and. I think I wanted to do sculpture at the time. Um, but I think my first sort of realization that design was something that could happen to someone, <laughs> you know, something that you could pursue was was. When I first saw people building um, boats, you know timber boats, and I just thought, "Wow, this is." I mean, it was really the craftsmanship that got me going. But and where did you see that? Oh well, when I was a kid, I used to do um, quite a bit of sailing, and I I think it was when I might damage my little sailing boat, and this this guy (laughs) offered to mend it, and I went to his workshop and I saw these boats that he was building from scratch, and I thought, "Wow, this is incredible." Um, and then going back to the foundation, yeah, I realized that there were so many different options out there and I thought that maybe pure fine art or sculpture wasn't quite actually one. uh, There was a practical application to, to design that i really enjoyed and, and kind of thought I might pursue that. But I, I then went and did interior design, um, at Leeds Poly. I didn't go into furniture. In fact, I've never studied furniture, so. That was a bit of a curveball. And then I thought, well, if I'm doing interior design, I want to do architecture because uh, I think, you know, that that it's more about building objects, I Mm. mean, making, creating objects. So then that's when I went to the Royal College and met Jay. So when you first met in 92, was there
0: an immediate realisation that you two were bound to work together?
1: No, I'd say what happened was we, and in common with lots of people who, go to colleges in their first term, I think you get a little bit... I think we were both a little bit disappointed. Right, actually. why is that? I think we were a bit disappointed that we weren't... Uh, I think when you get a place at the Royal College, you, you feel that you're going to get... That everything, suddenly your life is going to transform, that this is an amazing opportunity where... And I think we both felt that the bar would be set incredibly high and the, and you we would have to work really 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 hard right from day one and actually it was so it was very relaxed there wasn't there was, it was somewhat chaotic it didn't it wasn't quite well it was wanted, also
2: quite shocking i mean the first project we did was to draw um classical columns <laughs> yeah
1: and, yeah it was, the, and, it was that well, i mean period. when i look
2: back at it it, it it certainly wasn't a waste of time, but it wasn't how I'd imagined my first term at the Royal College at all. Mm. And as Jay said, it was very un- unstructured and it was kind of a bit uninspiring, honestly. And I I spent the previous three or four months traveling, um, mainly around Asia. I'd taken hundreds of rolls of film and I spent probably the first term and a half in the dark rooms (laughs) just (laughs) processing my film and printing and stuff because i i was very yeah i was disappointed
1: i think we were both really looking for um a challenge you know we were expecting to be really challenged and we were up for it both of you know and actually it didn't come through college it came through external projects which we 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 found.
0: So, what kind of external projects were you doing, and uh, were you doing those projects together?
1: Yeah. So we started off. Actually, we started working together, designing um, a restaurant for you know a couple of people who had a site in in South Kensington and. um, And so suddenly we were we were balancing college work, you know, designing classical, well, drawing classical columns and things. Well, it did did move on a bit. It did, it did, (laughs) it did, it did did move on. It did move on. But we were still we did this kind of balancing of um, real life projects for real people, uh, and the pressures that came from that, with uh, you know, with the college, the work that the college was setting us, and actually, I think. That was probably the most important part of the education that we have ever had because we learned to work together. We learned to work in extreme stressful situations and and juggling different things at the same time. So juggling the work of the college and then having a couple of projects on site when we were in our really early 20s and we, you know, we were learning every single day, a whole load of new stuff.
2: But also trying to hide the fact that we had these projects on site because the tutors were... Well, initially unaware, and when they found out, were incredibly um, against it, and were a couple of them were trying to get us thrown off the course. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah.
1: We both had exit interviews. Wow. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, it didn't go down. So we
1: weren't like that. Well, the glory kids of our generation. Right. We were very much the kind of scraped, just fact, flying by the seat of our pants was our catchphrase.
0: But you've, but then you've always had this
2: entrepreneurial streak running through your career. In that case, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it, yes, I think we always, we're always we always looking for opportunities, um, whatever it might be, whether it's a project, whether it's a... I mean, even now working on projects, we're always looking to do something new, something innovative, something, whether it's a new material, whether it's a new way of working or... You know, it, it, there's something, our brains are quite in, inquisitive. Um, and I think the entrepreneurial aspect is just one of that just happens to fall into that category mm. of sort of it's design. searching it's designed as well isn't it?
1: Mm. it being entrepreneurial is you know creating problems or solving them or seeking change or you know we're also really good as um uh we're good collaborators we enjoy working with other people um and that enables us to really push Companies and individuals to do things that they hadn't even thought of when they first knocked on our door.
0: But it was this um, one of your initial interior schemes that led to the yeah. loop table, right? That's Which, right. Yeah, Which that's became right. your kind of signature piece. Was made of plywood, um, but it wasn't specifically meant to be made from plywood originally. That was we didn't really the material know. wasn't in mind.
1: No, because it was this period of work where we had just finished at the Royal College, I think, and the you know we started sharing a. A sort of studio, in inverted commas, it was Ed's flat, really. in Tower, yeah. yeah. And um, we, um, you know, we had lots of architectural model making stuff kicking around. We had YooHoo glue, we had cutting mats, scalpels, and and white card from building our kind of the buildings that we submitted showed. And actually, when it, when it came to designing furniture and things for projects architectural projects we were working on we used those materials to generate the form you know we didn't have computers we didn't have any we could sketch things but when it came to making sort of models we used the white card and white card lent itself really well to being um, translated into plywood for production and it was also i mean i think
2: which is totally true but we also love the material because i mean plywood is it's a fantastic material actually because it's 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 a sort of it's halfway between a plastic and a natural material because you can mould it but there are restrictions so it's it creates a really interesting language in itself um, and it also it's it ages quite nicely whereas typically plastics they look mm. they look their best on day one and then sort of go downhill <laughs> whereas actually plywood if it's if it's relatively well looked after ages
1: very nicely. And also when you, you know, once we started on that road, there was an awful lot to learn from, um, you know, from the, the masters of plywood and the history of the material itself. And we were very fortunate that really early on uh, in our kind of endeavors, we we um, found Chris McCourt.
2: Or Windmill Furniture yeah. at the time, right? Well, Windmill Furniture was one of the companies that Chris McCourt owned. Um, it was... Effectively, a shop fitting company and made incredibly high quality um, carpentry, um, cabinetry, sorry. And um, the other one was Isocon, which was um, the company that was set up in 1935, as far as I remember, by Jack Mm, Pritchard. Jack Pritchard, yeah. Yeah. And Jack Pritchard was uh, producing fundamentally plywood furniture for um, Marcel Breuer. Um, Egon Riss, um, emigres really, that were passing through London on their way to America. And Gropfius was like the creative director, wasn't
0: he, when yeah. he was, yeah. was
1: brief staying in London? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he actually went for the job as, um, at the Royal College as a rector yeah. and then didn't get it. And then, then the US got modernism. Mm.
2: Mm. So Chris McCourt was making these unbelievably beautiful, classic pieces of early plywood. And we learned so much from him because he made the first uh table, the loop table it was called, for this restaurant in South Kensington called The Crescent.
0: Which was a like a low coffee table. Yeah. Like
2: an elongated loop, wasn't it? It was an elongated loop. I mean it was, I mean, yeah. It it was designed very functionally because we wanted to have a top surface that was, you know, serviced as a as a low table, but we needed an element of storage. And believe it or not, it was for ashtrays, really, um, back in the day. And, <laughs> yeah. and a few magazines. So, Those were the 90s. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, we, we were so fortunate. We managed to um, locate uh, Isocon and Chris McCourt. And he produced the first piece. Um, and he was very excited about it, the first prototype. He said, oh, I think we should put this into production. And and that was really the start of us working as furniture designers.
0: I mean, he actually created a new brand around around this product, right? I mean he'd created a new yes. company. Isocon Plus yeah. was was
2: was new based on this particular
1: I think so. Well design. certainly a collection of things because we mm. did the flight stool as well for the Soho mm. Brewing Company. Yeah he
2: did because he couldn't Isocon was an existing brand and consisted of all these classic pieces. And he also wanted to then I, I suppose that the loop table sort of kickstarted an idea for him to then go on and produce more plywood pieces, contemporary pieces. And he couldn't use the name Isocon because that belonged to the old pieces. So he spoke to the Pritchard family, and they agreed that if it was called Isocon Plus, then he could add new pieces with contemporary designers. So yeah, in effect, the loop table was that starting point. Mm. And you moved into his studio at one point. Well, it wasn't his studio, but he owned... A series of buildings in Chiswick. And we we sort of outgrown Trellick Tower. I mean, it was not a big flat. Yeah, it was like um, one room. <laughs> we outgrew it with the, th- with the first person we hired. Yeah. And he, um, he said, well, I've got a spare studio if you want to move in there. So we spent a couple of years, I think, yeah. in Chiswick. Turnham Green Terrace, Muse, And it was great. It was amazing because we were so close to you know, the workshops and working with him and learning so much.
1: It was amazing. It was good. And we got, you know, we had an idea and it could be prototyped by lunchtime. You know, it's re- it great. Did you feel stuck in plywood for a while as a result? Not really stuck. It, we didn't really feel like we had I don't even feel like now we finished. I was going to say we we're working in plywood, we're doing yeah. stuff in plywood it's now. Great. I don't think we'll ever feel like but we we've did, done it. We did loads plywood. of solid stuff, solid. You know, we did the Portsmouth uh, Cathedral bench for the Portsmouth Cathedral, and um, you know, the home table. So we did it. You know, it, it was interesting because Chris would say, for example, with the home table, I, I seem to remember him saying, "I've got this amazing oak. You know, this incredible, these incredible planks, and they, are, I don't know, thirty-five mil deep or whatever they were." What should we do? And so there you go. There's a project. There's a project just in that conversation, and that's how the home table started. So, you know, it was it was the kind of education in plywood and making form, but also in understanding a certain amount of cabinetry and you know the joining skills which we hadn't had. Just for listeners who maybe
0: are a bit younger than us, mm. um, can we try and describe, paint a picture of what the British design scene was like at that time? There's there's a yeah. lovely quote actually that I found from The Independent uh, in 98, Nony Noni Nieswand wrote, um, when you were doing Soho Brewing Company, in fact, where... Um, Edgy quotes you and she says, I can't stand Lloyd's in London or the
2: Pompidou Centre, both yeah. by Richard Rogers." Complete and utter misquote, <laughs> which also got us into real trouble. <laughs> no, it's a complete nonsense. I don't know where that happened because I actually love both. Absolutely love both. I don't, I don't. So there's know no what... sense
0: you were breaking a mould or in some way no. rebelling against... A,
2: Absolutely a kind of... not. I, to this day, we don't understand how that happened. But we did get a... We, ph- we
1: actually had a phone call from Rogers' press <laughs> office saying... That's <laughs> hilarious. To that come on. Yeah. That's um, actually... No, it wasn't so much at that point. It was like the Wild West, you know. The in the early nineties, there was that dreadful recession in ninety two, and really the design world was split between consultancies, which were numerous, like you know, and well established Mm. industrial design companies, the architecture companies, and then there were these bunch of graduates, ourselves included, who who weren't really looking particularly for work, but were just trying it out, trying something out. So, you know, we were. You know, A.J. and Russell, as they were. Mm. David A.J. and his business partner were down the road from us. We worked with them on a couple of things. They helped us on a couple of things. There were you know, lots of our contemporaries scattered around, all of us just trying to figure out how to put one front, foot in front of the other and make something of ourselves without looking for jobs. And that was kind of felt like the norm at the time. We were, so in a way, it was subversive because we weren't trying to get work. We weren't trying to get hired we felt that there was hope that we could make it on our own.
0: Because in some ways, your rise seemed, um, I mean, pretty seamless. You were spotted by Tyler Brulé, who had a new magazine called Wallpaper. Uh, at that point, you did his stand at 100% design. You were spotted at 100%, well, the loop table was spotted by Giulio Capellini, who asked to produce it. Uh, and then you're in with these major European manufacturers, it seems to me. I mean,
1: do you think that would happen now? Could it happen now? I don't think so. Mm. I don't I actually, I really think the timing, we were really fortunate that the timing was right. I mean, we also make, you know, you make your own fortune. We, we we decided to design the wallpaper stand for nothing on the basis that we could put our furniture front and center. And had we not done that, we wouldn't be doing this now. So there were a few things, you know, there were a few things that were f- timing-related for fortuitous. Today, I don't know. I, d- I think that we're in a situation now where... Um, completely contrasting to that period design is absolutely all around us you know you don't have to make stuff to realize it because things can be rendered so perfectly that they looks like your products out already um so yeah back in those
2: days when the loop table i remember we thought right we should get some publicity on this and so you know you commission a photographer you'd get tons of transparencies made up you'd send them out and then after a week or two you'd hear nothing so you'd call up the people and say did you get the And they said, Oh, no, can you send another one? And and every time (laughs) that's like another five. Well, more than that. It's like 20 quid, Jay. I mean, you know, this is really hard work. You know, eventually, you know, it it sort of caught on. But I don't know, today it's there's so much, there's so much around that it's really hard to really sort of see what What's good and what's not? Almost. It's well, it's easier to communicate your work, but paradoxically, very easy, harder but to get noticed. I well, think. because it's so easy, yeah.
1: everyone's doing it all the time, and it actually puts you off it. Yeah, you know the whole thing. I mean, we have to go to Milan, we have to go to some of the fairs, but actually, we don't really look around. Um, we know we never buy design magazines. Really, we don't look at them. I it's it's a it's a toxicity associated with having overabundance of design because it just makes you question what you're doing. And actually we, we've come from this love of the subject of making and crafting and actually trying to do something that makes a difference. Um, but it is hard with so much stuff around to kind of keep that focus. And making has always been important to what you do. Model making for us, yeah. yeah. But also being close to the making. I mean, we're neither of us furniture makers um and we probably knock something together but I shouldn't think anybody would want to buy it but we do we are intrinsically linked to the the process and love every kind of minute of it and are involved in in it all the way through but i think the thing that we get out of it most is working with the people who really know what they're doing the craftsmen whether it's actually working on a an actual piece of solid wood furniture for example or the technology technology that goes into making an incredible mould for a plastic injection moulding it's still craft mm. to us, and we love that process.
0: Mm. So um, as a number of products in your range expanded, so did the materials that you used. There was a table in oak for Isocon Plus, a stool in teak for Cappellini. Um, you did a bottle, a PET bottle for Coca-Cola. I mean, would you do
2: that now, out of interest? Definitely not out of PET, but we might do a bottle if we could find um, something. Well, no, actually, we probably wouldn't. <laughs> no, because not not for a company that's producing things that would have to be used only once. No, we would no, you definitely wouldn't. But I think, you know, starting out as a designer, um, and especially in those days, you never got the opportunity to work with a big company to start with. You had to prove yourself. It took, you know, probably seven to 10 years, probably before the really big companies would work with you. And that meant that the smaller companies, you weren't really using very high tech processes and materials because investment costs are so high. Um, so you tended to be doing pretty basic upholstery and solid wood and things like that. Mm.
0: But as you've gone on, you haven't only done work for production. There's been limited edition products for people like Established and Sons. You've done installations with yeah. BMW and Sony. I mean, you've done works of art at the Haunch, yeah. Haunch of Venison. We've
1: Was that always going to be part of your portfolio? I think the, th- the fact is that one of the thing- one of the main reasons that I think Ed and I work together is because we're both ambitious to do different to, do, to challenge different disciplines. So we haven't stuck with one thing. Maybe to our detriment that we haven't become known for the thing. You know, we're not the guys that do the dots or the people who do the shiny stuff or, or whatever it is. You know, there's not one thing. Our, our thing is being diverse. And but we do that because we, I think we've both got quite low boredom thresholds and we love to do new things and learn and learn a lot. So each one of those things that you've just talked about brought a whole new set of skills and learning.
2: I think what's important to say, I mean, is that both those projects you mentioned, the Sony installation and the BMW installation, they both started as something very different from what they ended up because we were, I guess, ambitious, as Jay said, to do something really incredible. And, you know, the Sony one, for example, was really just to design a room set for Sony to show some TVs at Milan. and they approached us to do that. And we just thought, well, we can't do this. It's not interesting at all. And so we dug really deep into what new technologies and that they were working on. And and they were working really deeply in, in sound. I mean, lots of other things as well. We went to the headquarters in Tokyo, they opened the doors to all their new stuff. And we thought that the, the stuff that, the, sorry, the, the, the sound stuff that they were working on was incredible. And we decided to, base and installation around that so we we quite often turn things on their head you know what what comes to us or what we initially discover with a company is not necessarily where we
1: end up and actually in both those in the case of the sony exhibition which which centered around sound and then the bmw installation that we did at the vna which was really about a visual ex- a visual kind of change or subversion. We're really concerned with experience and not about shapes. Or you know, they were both both of those um, both of those exp- uh, exhibitions were um, complete, uh, like a complete break for us from designing form. They were about changing the way that you hear the world, or you feel in a space, or you see things. Um, so in a way, that's like a holiday for us.
0: There's always a fascination with duos: Lennon McCartney, Blair Brown ridgely michael as to <laughs> as to how they work together yeah i mean what do you bring between the pair of you to this partnership i don't know yet really
2: <laughs> i think it changes that's the thing on yeah. every project it's not like you know you don't have the straight guy and the funny guy you don't have the one guy who's the nuts and bolts and one with the flare and one we check we work across so many different disciplines and so many different companies materials that you know inevitably one kind of takes the lead on a project and then maybe hands over the baton halfway through. And also these projects typically take years. They're not sort of, you know, they don't take a few weeks. They might take two to four years if it's a furniture product, a furniture piece. So we,
1: it's hard to really tell exactly who does what. Well, I, I think the strength of partnerships, creative partnerships, so I'm not talking about comedy particularly because I don't think that would go down terribly well, but creative partnerships are successful, normally in architecture, because the two partners can honestly tell each other what they really think. Whereas if you're a named designer or a named architect, clearly you hire people who possibly, in the sense of like Henry, the court of Henry VIII, don't tell you really how it is. So you as the principal potentially end up feeling slightly insecure and you just get surrounded by a lot of yes people. Whereas Ed and I don't have a yes type of relationship, you know, we ch- always challenge each other, but in a, really, in a really healthy way. And if, you know, and I think that's what, so I think when we're working on a project together, the thing that comes out at the end of it is almost always better than it would have been if it had been one or the other of us.
0: Has the way that you work changed as the companies got bigger? Because you, you have staff now, you
1: have a team. How big are you, in fact? Not that big, like thirteen or something, including us. Yeah, not even I think. But actually, yeah, no. it's grown, but it hasn't really. I mean, we, it could be much bigger than it is, but we decide. You know, we're not really. We want to keep it kind of manageable, mm. so maybe 10, mm. 10 people hasn't really changed. No, actually hasn't. I mean, obviously, there are people who we work with who are um, who are incredibly creative people who really help the process for us, but they we're we don't exclude them it's all part of the kind of conversation
2: yeah but also we you know we do because we do quite diverse things you know we we need someone who's really good at upholstery detailing we need someone who's really good at um, 3d surfacing on the computer for plastic projects and so you build up your team with experts um, and they're very much a part of the process and we discuss at length with them so they're not we don't sort of hand stuff down to them and say, right, draw that up or get that made. You know, they're really, they're integral to the process. I
0: think the next material I'm keen to alight on, because uh, I'm aware that the clock is ticking, uh, is polypropylene, uh, which you used to create the Tipton chair for Vitra. Um, why that material and what was the thinking behind that chair? I mean, it was originally attended, intended for schools, like the Robin Day polyprop, right?
1: Uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's quite, the, the project itself is um, came from uh, uh, a question that was posed to us by the Royal Society of Arts because they were, do you remember when in the good old days when there was this thing called building schools for the future mm. <laughs> and uh, the RSA were involved with uh, one of the academies, the Tipton Academy in fact, right. um, which was kind of pioneering new ways of teaching kids, new curriculum uh, and that kind of thing. They were trying to find furniture for the project. So we were sort of challenged with this idea of finding, going through catalogs, seeing what was available and seeing if there was something on the market that we thought would be right for the way their kids are taught today.
2: It was purely, they came to us for advice and a recommendation rather than they didn't come to us for design. Mm.
1: And uh, there wasn't anything. So we were quite astonished really that furniture hadn't moved at all.
0: Um, In terms of why wasn't there anything? uh, What were you you looking for?
1: The big thing is that the way that kids... Uh, learn is not the way that we were taught you know when we just sat down and, and copied stuff off the blackboard as it was um actually the educate the place of education now is much more like the workplace where people where kids are taught in project teams where they move around the studios uh, sorry around the classroom and the furniture that that we were being asked to select was a combination of sort of 60s um uh school furniture and then cafe chairs you know pretty good stuff not bad but just not appropriate and so we suggested that this was a really good opportunity to design a new chair for a new way of learning um that was it
2: so we went to quite a few schools around the country and started talking to the teachers and saying you know what what's wrong with the furniture that you've got or what what could be an improvement and at the same time we were also doing a lot of research, uncovering research that had been done and mainly in the, I think, late 60s, early 70s about the fact that if you could incorporate some movement in a school chair so that the kids, when they start to fidget, rather than actually tipping back on the chair or getting up or tapping their leg on the floor, they could actually use that um, that frustration, I guess, into moving in the chair, say in a safe manner. As opposed to rocking back, which As opposed to, to, to rocking back, which is yeah, kind yeah. of dangerous. Um, what that does is that as you're using your leg muscles to tip forward and backward on your chair, you're increasing slightly the blood flow around the body. And therefore you're getting a bit more oxygen to the brain. And therefore you're becoming um, slightly more alert and your concentration is improved. So we uncovered that piece of research, I think came from Scandinavia. And then alongside that, um, any good uh, contemporary office chair has a forward tilt because it's much much better for you if you're sitting for periods of time to have your spine straight and your legs tipping forward. Um, so we put a, we put together a brief really, and that incorporated movement, a forward tilt, low uh, noise because all the teachers said that when the kids move their chairs around they're so noisy. I had to have um, color because some most schools have color coordinated areas or or floors in their building um and it had to be indestructible so no really no moving parts and really no components because in the end either they get pulled apart by the kids or they just fall apart Mm. so that that was our brief and we took that to the rsa and they thought it was fascinating but they didn't really know how to what how do we take it from here so we approached vitra because we thought Vitra being the perfect partner for this kind of project, because they've got so much knowledge in the workplace. They also have, they can deal with large numbers and they've got a very high level of production. Was it always going to be polypropylene?
1: No, it wasn't always going to be polypropylene, but we knew we, we had to create um, a chair that had movement, but without mechanism. And as uh, Ed was saying, it had to be something that had a really long life cycle. So we figured it probably should be a monoblock And that led us to plastics. Um, It led us to plastics because, um, you know, we thought a one-shot injection-molded chair would be incredibly strong. Um, So, okay, now maybe we perhaps we would use a different polymer, a recycled polymer or a non-downgradable polymer. But then it was a really good solution to um, the project because I think typically the school chairs in the UK have an 18-month life cycle. They they cost next to nothing, but they break. I think really it was about rapidly. eleven quid was yeah. the
2: average spend on a British school chair. And
1: we just saw so many chairs in skips. We thought well, we've got to design something that's going to last a really long time. But
0: is presumably if it's being manufactured by Vitra, it's quite an expensive piece. I mean, has it gone? It into is. Schools?
2: You see, the problem is the problem is that you know you can buy a chair for eleven pounds or whatever it is, which will last you you know eighteen months or two years if it's quite well looked after. This is what they told us in the schools. Or you can spend maybe 60 quid on a Tipton chair and it'll last you probably 25 years. Um, But the problem is that the budgets, the school budgets don't work like that. Mm. They they can never gather enough money together to make that long-term investment. So they still rather spend 10 or 11 quid on a chair and just keep recycling them.
0: Mm. Mm. I mean, just quickly for the listeners who might not be aware, but injection molding. Can we describe what that process requires?
1: Okay, so for example, on the Tipton chair, I mean, well, I mean, injection moulding basically means you you need a large bit of metal with the negative shape of the object removed, uh, and then metal, uh, sorry, then um, plastic is melted and under force injected into the shape. And then the, the parts of the mould come apart after a few minutes once it's cooled down, and then the object's sitting there. Um, it's like making a like making an Easter egg or anything, any type of molding. It's very very straightforward. In the case of the Tipton chair, I think the mold, uh, because it's a complex form, I think there are seven moving parts, and uh, I think it was twenty tons of steel that we had to cut to make the chair. And not only that, the chair is also gas injection molded. So that means that the plastic is injection molded, but whilst the whilst the plastic is in the mold and it's still molten, high pressure hot air is forced into the mold as well. And that, what that does is it pushes the plastic to the, to the extremities of the mould and creates something like a, a bone structure. You know how you have that sort of arrow, arrow, aerated um, section in your bones? It creates a lightweight. It uses less plastic because the, um, the inside is essentially hollow. So uh, when the mould opens, it has a perfect skin, um, which is finished in the way you want it to be finished. But the inside sections, if you cut the legs in half, for example, is hollow and aerated. So it's light. It's really, really light, and it's actually incredibly strong, um yeah, but it's incredibly complicated mm. to do that and it was what was great about the Tipton project with vitra is that they were mad enough to do it to invest in something that they didn't know would be well received at all you know, yeah it I mean, it's an gamble. odd it's
2: an odd looking chair I mean it looks less odd now because I think we've become familiar with it, but when it was first launched, you know I'm sure there are a lot of people that thought, well, do we really need a chair that does this and but I think what's it's sort of proved itself. I mean, the sales every year still keep growing. Um, And it's finding its way into more and more colleges, schools in this country, sadly not, but schools in central Europe, there are many, many schools and lots of universities, but in London, I mean, you find it in the Royal College of Art in um, central St. Martins, it's found its way into education at the higher Mm. level.
1: Mm. And what's the other thing that's interesting about it is that with the whole emergence of the startup, you know, economy that's happened in the last sort of 10 years it's displaced office furniture office chairs so it's uh, you know it's a simple tipton chair it gives you the enough comfort for a day's work and you don't need all the kind of bells and whistles that you were normally sold for an office chair.
0: And that notion, that the research that you did and the ability to to tip forward on the chair, I mean, that fed into a very different project, which is the Bodleian Library University yeah. of Oxford that happened a couple of years later.
1: Yeah, that was a competition that the library, Oxford University Library, set to design their, I think, the third chair in 300 years or something, wasn't it? Something like Yeah. Um, so they've obviously got a good track record of furniture that lasts. Um, and, yeah, we... We applied our learning from the Tipton chair to the library chair. Very different, obviously, incredibly different, because Bodleian Library is—they—they um, uh, they expect their readers to—to to work in the chair for up to twelve hours, and uh, you know, anyone sitting because people fly over from all over the world to look at these manuscripts, medieval manuscripts, for example. So they needed extreme comfort, but um, a chair and a chair that would obviously sit well in the Bodleian Library.
2: Yeah, so it's it's a very different version of the Tipton chair. So mm. you have a an upholstered leather seat in an oak frame, but it still does the same thing. So by this stage, you're on,
0: you're on a bit of a run, really, uh, because your next project, the one we're going to talk about next, was the Olympic Torch 2012 Games. Uh, you won an international competition, um, but you didn't really have long to design this object. <clears throat> well, yeah. yeah.
1: There's a story there, isn't there? The, yeah.
0: yeah.
2: Well, the LOCOG, which was the London organizing committee had planned the route for the torch and you know everything that around the, the torch relay but had not appreciated i think how long it takes to design and engineer and then build torches and we were left with 18 months yeah it's normally three years of, mm-hmm. it's normally three years and it was 18 months before the start of the games to come up with an idea <laughs> um have it engine it bear in mind this isn't just a nice looking object it has to, it's a very functional thing you know it has, it has to
0: be comfortable in your hand i guess well, it has lightweight. to be
2: lightweight because you have runners that are you know in young kids and you have elderly people um it has to be incredibly safe because you've got a burner a gas burner in the middle of it and presumably it'd be bad if the flame goes out well, you don't want the flame to go out, but you also don't
1: want it to explode in a crowd on yeah. live TV either. <laughs> yeah, so, you, you know, right you, yeah, you don't want to set fire to the <laughs> to the relay team in their shell suits.
2: So it's actually a pretty complex project, and you have to um, do a, a huge amount of testing and engineering to get to this point where you then produce a number of the torches, which is neither mass production nor batch production, because in the end we produced, I think it was 12,000 torches there were 8,000 for the for the um 8,000 for the relay and then 3,000 for the Paralympic relay right. um so the investment cost is very high to make these things but actually the numbers are very low um so all in all it was a very complex project under a huge amount of pressure and in fact it was so tight on timing that they were actually making torches as the relay was happening and we were shipping torches to the next
1: event yeah it was tight there was supposed to be it was there was another aspect to this as well which we haven't really spoken about before i don't think and that was that when we were well, won the first of all we won the competition it was an international competition and initially the the um, the Olympi- IOC and Locog were really keen that the torch should be a green a green relay, mm. and they were really keen that we explored the idea of using, uh, like I think it was compressed, uh, elephant grass, wasn't yeah. it? Elephant grass and in, coconut, in, in oil. coconut
2: oil, it was a sort of cake, a compacted cake of grass and, and um, coconut. Which, you yeah. know, it, the flame was really not, was great. It, it gave a really good flame. It was impossible to light.
1: And it was impossible to put it out. And it was
2: impossible to put it out. And, <laughs> and, and it also... The,
1: f- cinders were flying. Flying off It was the like bike. a steam train. So when you're actually running down the street, there was a high probability that you would set fire to people. Uh, so we were <laughs> running... We were a year and a half, you know, we were a year and a half late even when we won the project. Then actually we were desert, developing two torches at the same time putting an awful lot of effort into trying to make this thing work in in parallel working on a kind of really complex gas burner as well the whole thing was it was actually it was brilliant brilliant. it was it was 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 nerve-wracking
2: but so brilliant and and then other obstacles would just appear We, we decided to do sheet aluminium because it was very lightweight and it was perforated with um, thousands of holes in the end, 8,000 holes because we wanted to represent each one of the runners in the body of the torch
1: and each but, one of the miles.
2: And each one of the miles, but the reason that we also did it was because it made it lightweight and it made it um, sort of aerodynamic as well. And it didn't transfer the heat from the flame down to the handle. So there are a number of reasons for that.
1: The well, one of, the, one of the had, reasons was that it enabled you to get enough oxygen to the bloody grass. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, the other thing is. um,
2: the torches all had to be made in the UK. That was always stated at the beginning of the brief, and so, having got the design, we we tried to find a manufacturer who could make these eight thousand or twelve thousand torches in time. And just to do the to do the the um, the the re, the relay was eight thousand, and so there were eight thousand torches, eight thousand holes. That's sixty-four million holes. It's a lot of holes. It's a lot of holes to. Cut and yep. so we found this company, and they said, Right, yeah, yeah, we can do this, we can do this. Um, and then after a few small calculations, they said it's going to take about six years or something to make them. <laughs> and uh, we said, Yeah, we've only got about nine months now. So it ended up them buying some very fancy equipment from the states and flying. Yeah, over. the
1: fastest laser cutter on the planet was brought in. <laughs> don't know what it's doing but today. They,
0: they, you know. So, Locog didn't say maybe cut the holes out. Guys. No, no, local The holes were, were definitely no. They, they were, really were no.
2: That was the brilliant thing. Locog was so sold on our design that they would not compromise on anything. They had to get this thing done. They were as really we good, weren't they? It. They
1: were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we we had we were working on a daily basis of the fear that you get of public humiliation if you don't <laughs> do a good job. But Locog were uh, incredibly professional. Really, really, really. Um, committed to it and they just didn't see they're like okay we'll do this let's make it work we'll make it work but it was dawning on
2: us at halfway through when we thought maybe we're not going to get there in time this this could be the last job we ever get you know it was sort of (laughs) yeah we had to really push hard to get it done that's good
0: so, so during all this time, you've not just been Barbara Oscoby. In 2001, you created uh, Universal Design Studio, which specializes in architecture interiors. Well, in 2012, I guess after the Olympics, you founded MAP, which is an industrial yeah. design consultancy. I mean, you recently sold a majority stake in those to WPP. Um, I'm wondering why. Why we did it? To mm. mean you don't have to work again.
2: Does
1: it mean we don't have to work here? Yeah. Well,
2: what do you think we're doing here? Well, yeah. I'm intrigued. So what, why did you why,
1: why did you decide to sell? Uh, we decided, I mean, in fact, we started both of those um, companies without our name over the door because we realized how good we were at collaborating. And we felt that um, we wanted to create an architecture and interior side and then an industrial side, which could be free to work, to bring the great people that we had to work alongside individuals and brands to do things which belong to the brand or the company, not to me and Ed. And Barbara Oscoby was always our kind of authored side, so we didn't really feel that we had to have that kind of ownership over them. Um, and then we decided to do the, the kind of partnership with, in fact, AKQA, who is a, a, one of the digital companies, that are owned by WPP. We decided to do that kind of partnership because um, we realized, as they did, I think, that um, our, the worlds had changed. The worlds of architecture and interiors, experience and, and industrial design changed so radically. We needed uh, a digital aspect to it you know to actually be able to be relevant in today's world we needed that and we couldn't generate it ourselves mm. and we already had a really good friendship with Ajaz Ahmed who started AKQA and it felt to us to be the perfect way of us bringing digital and, uh, into our world and for them it meant a digital agency could then be offering architecture and industrial design so in a way it becomes a sort of seamless um consultancy which takes care of all aspects of like from the built environment to the handheld, and then everything in between digital sphere. So it just felt like the next thing to do for us, the next step. Uh, I mean,
0: step. has
2: it changed the way that you work on a day-to-day basis, or has it? You mean us, the two of us? Yeah. Um, not that much, actually, because before we merged the companies, we weren't really working that much on a day-to-day basis. We obviously had an overview of both, Map and Universal, but we weren't working on projects on a daily basis. So it hasn't changed so much, honestly.
1: And we always subscribe to the thing, which is I can't remember who said it, but if you're going to hire someone, make sure you hire someone who's better than you. And we didn't that so effectively with Universal and Map that they were already really independent um, companies run by brilliant people. But that
2: said, I mean, we are still involved. Mm. I mean, we are still involved in both those companies and still, you know work on projects together Mm. with them. Yeah, pretty Mm. much every day,
0: in fact. So kind of looking through your clippings, you received incredibly little in the way of critical brickbats. You haven't had that kind of, I don't know, Thomas Heatherwick garden bridge moment. Um, The only one I can really think of was Rowan Moore, the Observer's architecture critic, who wrote, I found their works to be a little Blairite, examples of the tendency to take the inheritance of modernism, rinse out its social aims, and turn it to shaping blandly
1: desirable consumables. I mean, what what do you make of that? That was interesting because the interview that interview was done just after we um launched the tips and chair. Mm. Which think it was actually about the tips and chair. Yeah. Chat. Anyway, it was we were really perplexed. It was a bit of a kind of um the Richard Rogers thing from earlier on, maybe. But, you know, everything that we've done, all the projects that we've done, I think we have a huge it's not just a kind of aesthetic pursuit, it's an intellectual pursuit. And there's a great deal of discussion about what we're doing. And the changes that we can see in society and what we develop to accommodate those changes. So, I don't know, maybe I didn't really understand it, honestly. I think Tipton Chair is, you know, if I say so myself, is one of the most important pieces of design and certainly one of the most important chairs that's been created in, in 20 years, without doubt. And that didn't come just because we sketched something that was based on modernism, it was actually based on a huge amount of research and commitment from a company. I mean, Vitra wouldn't have done it if it was a, a flippant thing.
2: I'm not sure what I can add. Really. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, no, we were, we were definitely confused at the time. Um, but as you say, that's possibly the only or one of the only mm. few negative comments on our work. So maybe. I quite I like know. a bit more, actually, because no, I, mean, I get that, quite That is something. No, but tough. it's true that, that there is. Qu- there is little um, real criticism in design as opposed to architecture, which is much more um, hard-nosed and fashion and art. But yeah, no, I think it'd be, I think it'd be helpful actually to have some slightly more harsh.
0: Well, people always harsh. say they want
2: to see more criticism until they're criticized and then,
0: yeah. then
1: they
2: get really
0: shirty. No, I of mean, it. I think the
1: thing is that on with Rowan, I think that he is an architecture critic. And um, generally speaking, architecture is is something which is imposed on a society. Even if it's just a house on a street, it's imposed on the people who live there. And I think that it's fair enough to be critical of that. I think in the majority of our work, people have the choice to have it with some notable exceptions like the Olympic torch, which represented the country and was imposed. Mostly people have the choice whether or not to surround themselves with our stuff. But I do think the things which we have done, which are kind of have been imposed. So the exhibitions we've done, like In the Making at the Design Museum, the Sony Show, uh, Double Space and the Olympic Torch have all had really deep... And the coin. And the coin have all had really strong um, relevance. Mm. And haven't been Blairite, really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think in fairness to Rowan, he came in saying he had this prejudice and the tipped on... To put it into context, the Tipton kind of change. Oh, really? That is that right? I that is, think that's the one. I'm not sure
1: I read the article, actually.
0: <laughs> He's a very good writer, Ryan. He is a very good writer. Um, let's scroll forward to today, shall we? Um, the final piece I thought we could talk about was the stacking chair you've done for Emiko, mm. um, which is made from old Coca-Cola bottles, right? Mixed with glass fibre?
2: Yeah. The on-and-on chair. The on-and-on chair, yeah. It's, um, it's a project. It's our first project with a brilliant company called Emoco based in the west coast of America.
0: Who have, I mean, historically come up with a navy chair. They've been very important. They went into the US jails and and subsequently Conran restaurants in the 90s. That's That's right. right. And And
2: Philippe Stark then polished them and made them more glamorous. Um, But so, Emoco have got a very, very strong environmental standpoint on all their projects. It's not just that they're suddenly realized and jumping on a bandwagon. They really have. And they've been Developing furniture for the last twenty five years that have that um, integrity, and we've been we've actually been talking to the owner Greg for a number of years. We've met him at various fairs, and and he'd said, you know, I'd love to work with you guys on a project. Let's think about what it might be. And then about I guess two or three years ago, he said, look, we're working on this new plastic. They've been working on re- with recycled mm. PET for many many years. But he said, we've got a plastic now that's not only from recycled PET, it's also endlessly recyclable. So you can effectively take 10 chairs, make 10 chairs, grind them up, and make another 10 chairs from the same plastic, which is revolutionary, actually. And So it's recyclable by Emico in that case?
0: You by Emico, yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. So they could uh,
1: actually collect the chairs. If, the, if something broke or if you wanted to change the color or something like that, you could just send them back. And you, it it doesn't require... Um, a whole new chair to be molded. Mm, mm. I mean, sorry, a new chair is molded, but the, the the material itself doesn't downgrade. So it becomes something much more like aluminium, which is endlessly recyclable. Aluminium takes a shitload of energy to get it out of the ground. But once it's done, it's, it can, it'll can it last forever and can become anything from a can to a chair, to a car, to a plane, and back again. And and this plastic that they've developed, which I think took 14 years, didn't it? Said, it's taken a, a really long time for Offer, sure. is but... the first thing to do the same
2: so we they said well, we'd like you to do a a chair for us in this plastic, and so we we felt that the because it's so critical that we're using this um, that the plastic is is so critical to the project, the type of plastic we thought why don't we design a chair that's as lightweight as possible so we basically use as little of this plastic as we can, and we Set about to design a chair that was, I suppose, loosely based on the classic Tonne uh, Number Fourteen. I mean, it wasn't really at the beginning, but I guess it has a familiar. When you look at our chair, mm. it, it has a sort of familiar bistro cafe look. Now, the thing about the the, the Bentwood chairs is that they are obviously they they wear out quite quickly you can't leave them out in the rain they don't stack there's a number of things about them that i mean, they a brilliant chair but we thought well maybe we could sort of improve on that so with our chair obviously it stacks it's made of plastic so you can leave it outside we've actually got a seat that's interchangeable so that you can put upholstery in it or a plywood plywood seat so you come backside. around see <laughs> what i did there
1: Yeah, i like that yeah that's
2: good and we, it stacks in I um, I can't remember the technical term now. What did you call it? Spiral. Spiral. Well, yeah, it spirals upward, so it stacks upward. So it's got a very small uh, footprint, so you can stack, you know, eight chairs on the on the same space as you can as, as one chair. Which is so if you've
1: ever worked in a restaurant when you're mopping the floor at the end of the night, it's pretty handy, to, be handy. Able to stack. But also,
2: you know, we called it the on and on chair because that really describes both the, the plastic, but also the the, the motion of the stacking. Can I ask, because we're coming to the end of our time, mm.
0: you have many, many things to do, I appreciate the time you've given up. Thank you. But it seems to me that there's a generation of designers who've come after you um, who have rather different interests. Uh, the old established path of, of maybe working for major Italian firms is, is is kind of not seen as an obvious route so much anymore. I'm just wondering how you think the design industry has changed since you emerged in 96.
2: Well, I think it's changed radically. I think, as you say, um the sort of the model of working for a big manufacturer um, and getting paid a royalty per piece that's produced is definitely going out of fashion with most, I would say, young designers who are prepared, or, or sorry, would rather either batch produce or produce themselves. I think that's seen, and I think in a way that's probably a much more sustainable future for design. Anyway, I mean, if you go back fifty years, I would say. N- all designers were working locally so they're all working with local producers which meant that they were using probably local materials they were not being things weren't being shipped all over the world and you know really that's the way it should be and i think it will return to that um so that so that this sort of interlude of whatever 60 70 years of industrial um furniture production that's truly international
1: rather than localised is probably going to be over quite soon. I think that's the difference I think what we were um, we, we joined I think actually fairly late to that to the that wave of um, designers who increasingly became used as a marketing function rather than um, rather than actually doing great design um, and uh, I think as Ed said it's changed dramatically I think a lot for two reasons actually industrial objects have disappeared and been replaced by apps. Uh, industrial designers and furniture designers have probably seen, seen the light and actually either done one of two things. They've either gone into design and digital design because they know there's a safe career there, uh, or they've, they've, um, they've started making their, their own objects, their own things, crafting, you know, which, which we've seen this kind of the emergence of craft again hugely and people are able to make a living by using Instagram and social media to sell their things without needing to use retailers as such
2: so do you feel you're the last of a generation
1: probably yeah, yeah.
2: Mm. I actually think we are I mean we've discussed it a lot over the last few years um, I think and it's actually becoming interestingly enough the five six years ago we were inundated with CVs you know every week of people wanting to come and work with us and now it's quite tough trying to find people because they've all moved on and uh, they're doing different things. They're not. It's not necessarily
1: what people want to do now. Yeah, and courses have closed down. You know, the courses that we all went on to onto from foundation aren't there anymore. Some of them are. Some of them are brilliant. Like Kingston's amazing, for example. But
0: Ravensbourne is very digital, as opposed to the course that you did. It yeah, completely. It doesn't
1: exist anymore. Completely completely different and that they started really early on but and and I guess Ravensbourne was always a communication school too so graphics and television was part big part of what they did there but yeah certainly and also you know you can understand that workshops take up a a huge amount of space and money um and what I loved about Ravensbourne was the workshops that's why I went there but um you know it's a big capital expenditure and takes a lot of floor space so you can understand the economics of it but I think it's a if you're a creative person you you get unhappy when you're removed from making things and i think that's just something that is a, is a human need in most but and it's an it's a, an essential in a creative person final
0: question uh plans for the future what can we expect this year this year
1: yeah actually we've got an interesting project coming out with um an italian manufacturer using a revolutionary new plastic which is re- really exciting can't tell you too much about it but it's a
2: well it's a it's a it is a biodegradable plastic i mean not obviously in a very short time scale. <laughs> scale i mean you make furniture from it but it's it's just another example of the way that people are developing um, sustainable plastics and this so this will come out in april i was going to say for for milan furniture yeah. fair yeah
1: yeah a couple of things really we're working more on um, uh, the work that we've been doing with Vitra, which is trying to develop new thing, new new objects and um, furniture to ha- to accommodate the way that work is changing, and the work has changed just as much as not just design world, but everyone everyone's jobs have changed so radically. Uh, and again, a bit like the Tipton chair, the things that we take for granted don't necessarily support new ways of working. So we're kind of challenging that and looking at new ways of new objects and products to help people work in a better way very good well
0: that's a lovely place to leave it jay ed thank you so much for your time thanks a lot thank you and to learn more about ed and jay's work go to barbaosgaby.com there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my instagram page grant on design if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish then please rate and review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to this from and go to my patreon page and make a pledge You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft, and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.